Something to note, all of the groups covered on this show operate in secret. The details included in this episode are based on extensive research, but ultimately can never be 100% verified except by society members themselves. It was August 4, 1906, and once again, Daniel B. Wesson could not sleep. The firearms magnate lay wide-eyed in bed. Every creak and rattle in his mansion set his heart racing. Out of his window, he could see the slow bobbing of a lantern as the night watchman made his rounds. But even that was no comfort. Since Wesson had found two threatening notes in his mail eight months before, he had spent every night terrified. In both missives, the writer had claimed they had the power to blow up his stone mansion at the center of Springfield, Massachusetts. The only way Wesson could save his life was to hand over his money, all $30 million of it. The message was signed, The Society of the Black Hand. Wesson summoned the police. He hired guards, private detectives. He even convinced President Teddy Roosevelt to lend him a platoon of Secret Service agents. Despite his efforts, he was still petrified as he lay in bed on August 4th. Then Wesson heard a creak. He instantly knew there was someone in his house. The black hand had finally come for him. The old man jumped to his feet, reaching for the namesake pistol he kept by his bed. Suddenly, he felt an immense stabbing pain in his chest. Wesson's feet grew unsteady. His breathing became labored. The gun dropped from his hands as he collapsed to the bedroom floor. The coroner would report that Wesson died due to heart failure. But the townsfolk knew the truth. Daniel B. Wesson, the firearm king, had been frightened to death by the Black Hand. Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson. I'm Greg Polson. And this is Secret Societies, a ParCast original. Every Thursday, we examine history's most exclusive organizations from around the world and try to shine a light on these mysterious groups. From the Illuminati to the Order of the Nine Angles, we'll explore how much impact each secret society actually had on the world around them. This is our second episode on the Black Hand. Between 1900 and 1915, this underground criminal group surveilled, extorted, and terrified the Italian-American citizens of New York, Chicago, and other cities across America. Last week, we charted the Black Hand's rise to prominence and the emergence of their greatest enemy, NYPD detective Joe Petrozino. This week, we'll follow Petro Zeno and his Italian squad as they learn more about the Black Hand's nationwide criminal empire. We'll also explore how the press's breathless coverage of the group led to a public backlash that targeted not only criminals, but all Italian-Americans. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some... The gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. 
This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. By 1904, New York City's Italian squad was firing back at the Black Hand chapters that infested the city. Though they had only six men, no budget, and zero support from the NYPD, the squad managed to arrest hundreds of Black Handers between 1904 and 1905. With Joe Petrozino prowling the city, Black Hand crimes fell by almost 50%. The squad was successful because they'd adopted Petrozino's hands-on tactics, for instance, when the Black Hand threatened a neighborhood butcher shop, the squad shivered in the man's freezer for hours, lying in wait for the extortionists to appear. When a druggist received a Black Hand letter, the six detectives spent hours disguised as pharmacists, watching his customers. Once the victim signaled to the Italian squad that his three extortionists had entered the shop, the squad dropped their prescriptions and rushed to the door. They chased the men down the street and onto a moving streetcar. Seeing a detective board the tram, the Black Handers leapt out the windows to the street below, into the waiting arms of the rest of the squad. These victories taught Petrozino the importance of undercover work. However, raids and stakeouts could only take them so far. The Black Hand was a sprawling network. Every aspect of their operation kept inscrutable to outsiders. If Petrozino wanted to stop their activities in New York City, he needed someone on the inside. So in 1904, Petrozino approached a young man from Little Italy named Rocco Cavone. He told Cavone he needed an undercover agent to infiltrate the Black Hand. Petrozino was blunt. Whoever took on this task would be risking their life. Despite this ominous warning, Cavone volunteered on the spot. Cavone posed as a poor immigrant. He moved into a flea-infested flophouse on Mulberry Bend, sharing a dormitory with laborers and petty thieves. He quickly became a regular in the neighborhood taverns and bars. There, Cavone struck up conversations with criminals he recognized from the Italian squad's files. He acted as a confidant to grifters, extortionists, and even murderers. And all the while, he was feeding information on the underworld back to Petrozino. While Cavone never actually joined the Black Hand, he was able to positively identify dozens of members of the criminal group. Due to his months of surveillance, Petrozino finally had enough information to strike. The Italian squad tore through Little Italy, arresting dozens of Black Handers. Society members fled the city, afraid of Petrozino's wrath. Petrozino had just fired the first volley in an all-out war. Blackhanders knew they had to innovate to survive. 
when the Italian squad began arresting bagmen who collected ransoms from Black Hand victims, the group started employing dupes. They chose common laborers who weren't part of the society. Arresting them did nothing to advance Petrozino's offensive against the Black Hand. So, Petrozino began marking bills as a way to track ransom payments and protection money paid to the society. In response, the Black Hand switched to a new payment policy. No cash, only gold and silver coins. In another bid to avoid capture, the Black Hand adopted a standard form letter. This way, no one message could be traced back to a particular writer or even a particular chapter. Furthermore, each chapter bought a typewriter to avoid handwriting comparisons. Thus, despite Petrozino's best efforts, the society was always one step ahead of the Italian squad's tactics. They even took advantage of their vast national network to avoid detection. When the Black Hand determined they needed to kill a victim who wasn't paying, or a member who couldn't keep their mouth shut, they called in a specialist. Specialists were black-handers that traveled to other cities to commit murders. Since they were from out of town, they had no risk of being recognized by someone from the community. With each action the Italian squad took, the Black Hand found a loophole. And through every new initiative, they grew wealthier, spread further, and attracted more members. They were like the Hydra of Greek mythology. For every black-hander Petrozino put in jail, two more recruits sprang up in his place. The Black Hand's ability to outsmart the authorities eventually allowed them to establish a stronghold in the coal mining town of Hillsville, Pennsylvania. Their efforts were so destructive that by 1906, Hillsville residents had a special nickname for their community, Helltown. Helltown was home to the Carbon Limestone Company, one of the world's largest mining operations. Many Italian immigrants moved to Helltown to work in the mines, hoping to save for a better life. But though the town looked like a free municipality, it was caught in the Black Hand's vice-like grip. On payday, Joe Bonato, the local chapter's leader, would wait at the carbon payment office. As each miner received his salary, he had to place a portion in Bonato's outstretched hand. If any miners managed to save some of their wages to put in the local bank, the men would suddenly disappear. Days later, their bank accounts would be emptied. According to one account, parents warned their children against going near the strange mounds that dotted the landscape by the mines. Those were the graves of residents who'd caught the attention of the Black Hand. Some of them couldn't pay the protection fee but others were murdered for the meager savings they'd managed to scrape into their bank accounts. In Helltown, the Black Hand's greed knew no bounds. By 1907, the residents of Helltown had had enough. Since it was in western Pennsylvania, it was far outside the reach of Joe Petrozino's New York-based Italian squad. So the district attorney and the sheriff of Hillsville hired the Pinkerton Detective Agency to help them. Established in 1850, the Pinkerton Detective Agency was a private security company. Anyone could hire Pinkerton detectives to break up unions, surveil enemy companies, or in the case of Hillsville, investigate crimes. Upon being hired, Italian Pinkerton agents posed as new workers at the mines and befriended the other miners. They slowly built their case, gathering names of black-handers. Then, on July 13, 1907, the Pinkerton struck. 
As each worker came to the payment office to get their check, Carbon officials told them that something was wrong with their paperwork and asked them to step inside the office. As the payday line dwindled, a single boxcar slowed to a halt on the rails outside. When every identified blackhander was inside the payment office, the doors to the boxcar slid open. The sheriff, the district attorney, and a team of Pinkerton detectives jumped out and rushed into the payment office. They arrested all 22 blackhanders that stood inside and hustled them into the boxcar. Helltown was no more, but though the village was freed from the Black Hand, the story still inspired fear across the country. Americans nationwide read in horror about how one of their towns had been in complete control of a terrorist criminal organization. The Black Handers became associated with anarchists. People believed they were evil actors who wanted to overthrow governments for their own gains. Frightened whispers came from every corner of the country. Hillsville stamped out the Black Hand, but it took years. Meanwhile, the group kept spreading across the country. If the Black Hand couldn't be eradicated, what would they take over next? Large cities? The capital? The government? Citizens feared that the Black Hand was not just a street gang, but a threat to the foundations of American democracy. Up next, Americans fight back against the Black Hand, and innocent Italians get caught in the crossfire. Hi, it's Greg. Have you heard the newest Spotify original from Parcast? It's called Very Presidential with Ashley Flowers, and it uncovers the most damning details surrounding history's most high-profile leaders. Every Tuesday through the 2020 election, host Ashley Flowers shines a light on the darker side of the American presidency. From torrid love affairs and contemptible corruption to shocking cover-ups and even murder, she'll expose the personal and professional controversies you may never knew existed. You'll hear some wildly true stories about presidents such as Richard Nixon, George Washington, Teddy Roosevelt, and more. Very Presidential highlights the exploits you never learned in history class, but probably should have. Family drama, personal vices, dirty secrets. These presidents may have run, but they most certainly can't hide. Follow Very Presidential with Ashley Flowers free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now, back to the story. By 1907, the Black Hand was extorting citizens, controlling neighborhoods, and even taking over entire American towns across the country. Despite the growing threat that the Black Hand posed, Joe Petrozino still struggled to get the support he needed to eradicate the group once and for all. In October 1905, Petrozino took his frustration to the papers. In a scathing interview with the New York Times, he decried the lack of care the NYPD had for Italian constituents. He warned that if the NYPD didn't stop the Black Hand, the society would soon target non-Italians. 
In the interview, Petrozino also laid out the plan he had formulated to combat the society. If the NYPD wouldn't help him, he declared the only way to win was with federal support. His plan had three distinct parts. First, the United States would have to demand that Italy fine any Italian official who granted a passport to a known criminal. Many immigrants joining the Black Hand were convicted felons from Italy. Some of them had even been members of the Cosa Nostra, or the Camorra, the Sicilian and Neapolitan mafias. Second, the United States had to pass a law allowing the deportation of any Italian immigrant with a criminal background. This would be a powerful deterrent, stopping immigrants from committing crimes lest someone discover their previous transgressions. Third, the president would have to assign a task force of the Secret Service to help fight the Black Hand. The FBI didn't exist yet. So at the time, the Secret Service was the nation's only intelligence agency capable of investigating the Black Hand. In retrospect, some of these demands were rooted in prejudice, and the actions regarding deporting immigrants were outside the purview of the Constitution. If they were citizens, this law would deny them their due process. It would also open the door for deportations of law-abiding citizens who had committed crimes before emigrating to the United States. But Petrozino believed this plan was the best way to nip the black hand problem in the bud. The federal government thought otherwise. One official from the Treasury Department published a response, stating that if Petrozino wanted to use the Secret Service, he would have to pay their agents like a private detective agency. If he was unable to, the Secret Service had no other compulsion to help him under their federal mandates. But this was false. The Secret Service had already tried to investigate the Black Hand in 1904, when a letter came to Joel M. Marks, the assistant district attorney for New York City. In 1906, one year after they refused to help Petrozino, the Secret Service guarded the house of gun magnate Daniel B. Wesson when the Black Hand threatened him. Clearly, prejudice was at play. The Secret Service would protect its wealthy citizens or members of the government, just not Italians. But just as Petrozino predicted, the federal government's refusal to act only emboldened the Black Hand Society. In their quest for dominance, they expanded their victim pool. Before, the Black Hand mostly targeted Italian-Americans and English-speaking citizens. But now, verified Black Hand letters in German, Greek, Yiddish, and Hebrew began popping up. And the Black Hand didn't stop at attacking other immigrant groups. In 1906, they aimed even higher. Their new target? Congress. In January 1906, a series of postcards were delivered to several legislators in the House of Representatives. On one side of each postcard was a drawing of a large black hand. Written beneath the hand was a short message, only four days to come. Congress was in pandemonium. Lawmakers tried to figure out what they had done to become a target of the Black Hand and what the mysterious cards hinted at. From the outside, this appeared to be the Black Hand coup that Americans had feared and Petrosino warned against. In four days, the Black Hand would almost certainly attack the federal government. Two days later, another set of postcards were delivered. These cards had identical black palm prints printed on each, but the message below had changed. This time it read, you only have two days more. 
Congress demanded additional security to stand guard at the Capitol's doors. The Secret Service tried to track down the culprits, the two-day deadline looming over their heads. Though the cards were terrifying, they didn't clarify what the Black Hand wanted. They weren't the same as the ransom notes the society usually sent out because they didn't demand protection money. Despite this change in the group's M.O., legislators still feared that the Black Hand would continue its penchant of kidnapping its target's children. However, with little to no additional information, all they could do was sit and wait. The next day, another round of notes. They read, you have only one day more. When the fateful day of the deadline dawned in Washington, D.C., senators and state representatives filed into the Capitol building, their hearts in their throats. Extra patrols of Capitol Police and Secret Service trawled the corridors. Then the mail came, one final batch of postcards. On one side, the cards all had the same black hand that filled the Congress people with dread. But below the palm prints, there was a new message. It read, No more black hands. Use blank soap. It was an ad campaign. Though there's no record if blank soap faced prosecution for its publicity stunt, it was no laughing matter, however. For people like Petrozino, the black hand was an everyday adversary, terrifying and deadly. But for those outside the purview of a Black Hand chapter, it probably felt like a surreal legend. With sensationalist newspapers reporting on the bombings and the murders plaguing the cities, those removed from the direct influence of the Black Hand were able to downplay the society's risk and even joke about it. After the Blank Soap ad campaign, a veritable cottage industry sprang up. The Black Hand was the new villain in many plays, novels, and newspaper serials. Vendors sold black hand jewelry, buttons, even black hand stationery. To those not in its sights, the black hand had become a cool trend. The group's true impact became further muddied by copycats that sprang up in its wake. People who were not black handers began using the society's notoriety to cash in. Asa G. Candler the heir to the Coca-Cola fortune, received a black hand letter in 1906 asking for money. His extortionist turned out to be not the black hand, but rather a duplicitous member of his church who coveted his fortune. Other millionaires received threatening letters as well. Like in the case of Candler, the vast majority of these missives didn't come from the black hand, but from individual opportunists who hoped to make a buck off the black hand's name. In most cases, the rich citizens that received Black Hand letters saw their persecutors arrested. The NYPD, the Secret Service, and even hired Pinkerton detectives tracked down the letter writers, harassing the country's leisure class. But there was no similar response for Italian-Americans, who were most likely to be victims of the actual Black Hand. Authorities were content to leave them to their fates. Realizing they had to resort to their own devices, around 1908, many Italians throughout the United States began fighting back against the Black Hand in a new way. In cities like Chicago, Philadelphia, and even New York, Italian-Americans formed social clubs or Italian leagues. They created them to act as a community policing force to protect neighborhoods against the Black Hand. While a noble idea, these white-hand groups suffered in practice. Their problems were twofold. 
First, anyone who openly became a white-hander instantly made themselves a target of the Black Hand. Black-handers wouldn't hesitate to scare off or even kill someone they regarded as a threat to their organization. In fact, 1908 was the year that the Black Hand bombed the most buildings in its entire history. Many men who joined White Hand groups left out of fear. The second issue that plagued White Handers was the rising tide of anti-Italian prejudice, which hit its zenith in 1908. In Reed's Station, Kentucky, tensions reached a boiling point after a spate of Black Hand-related crimes. Citizens formed a mob and went door-to-door, -door attacking Italians who lived in the town. The mob didn't care to ascertain who was a Black Hander and who wasn't. Instead, they indiscriminately tore through the village, setting the homes of Italian families on fire. Rather than cracking down on the vigilante mayhem, the local government punished the beleaguered immigrant families further, ordering all Italians to leave Reed Station or face death. A similar situation played out in Clinton, Illinois. There, another angry mob drove 30 Italian rail workers out of town. Across the nation, people called for the federal government to halt all immigration from southern Italy. In Manhattan, Joe Petrozino was growing desperate. For years, he'd begged the government for help and asked them to crack down on the criminals immigrating from Italy. But now, they finally planned to tighten immigration laws. They weren't only targeting the Black Hand. Instead, the government was considering closing the United States to all Italians. If Petrozino didn't stop the Black Hand soon, the United States might bar every Italian from its shores forever. Up next, Joe Petrosino tries to cut the black hand off at its source, Italy. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Now back to the story. By 1909, Joe Petrozino had grown alarmed at the anti-Italian sentiment brewing in the United States. While the Black Hand preyed on local Italians, its very existence fostered prejudicial assumptions about all Italians. In light of the heightened anti-Italian sentiment, Petrozino was done attempting to break up the Black Hand chapter by chapter. If he wanted to eliminate the Black Hand on American shores, he'd have to stem the tide from the source, Italy. Petrozino found an unlikely partner in New York Police Commissioner Theodore Bingham. Bingham was a firebrand, a one-legged Army Brigadier General with a history of controversy and a penchant for profanity. In January 1909, Bingham approached Petrozino and asked him to lead the anti-Black Hand mission to Italy. 
After some negotiations, the two plotted out a three-step plan for the trip. Petrozino would travel incognito, remaining anonymous to everyone except the Italian officials he was working with. Once he disembarked in Italy, Petrozino would have three tasks. First, he would check the Italian penal records for the names of immigrants that traveled to America. That way, the NYPD and other police departments could track these men and women and deport any suspected of participating in the Black Hand. Second, Petrozino would make a list of the most dangerous Italian criminals still in Italy. These names would be distributed to immigration offices in America so that officials could stop flagged men from entering the country. Third, Petrozino would recruit spies in Italy. These incognito agents would be paid by the American government to report on potential black hand movement between Italy and America. Those in Petrozino's inner circle who learned of the mission were gravely concerned. He had made many enemies over the years, not just the black hand, but also the mafia. Petrosino's priest reportedly begged him, do not go to Italy, because I'm afraid you will not return alive. Petrosino responded, probably not, but it is my duty and I am going. When the steamship Duca di Genova set sail for Genoa at four o'clock on February 9th, 1909, there was no Joe Petrosino aboard, at least not according to the manifest. Instead, Petrozino posed as an Italian Jewish merchant named Simone Velletri. To further secure the ruse, Bingham informed the press that Petrozino had fallen sick and gone to the countryside to recover. But even with this care and concern, the mission seemed doomed from the start. Another passenger instantly recognized Petrozino from his pictures in the newspapers. Petrozino himself cavalierly remarked he was going to Sicily to others on board. He even changed his cover name to Guglielmo Simone halfway through the voyage. Bingham was no better. When a reporter asked him where Petrozino was, the commissioner remarked, why, he may be on his way to Italy for all I know. The intrigued journalist immediately shot out an article. His reporting also mentioned crucial details about Petrozino's trip. It asserted that the story detective sailed to Italy to root out the black hand. The wide dissemination of the paper meant that Petrozino's cover was blown before it even arrived. Upon disembarking in Italy on February 21, 1909, Petrozino was plagued by the sensation that someone was watching him. Oftentimes, he'd look suddenly behind him in the street to see a figure dart into a darkened doorway or alley. When he entered bars, the patrons would whisper to each other pointing out the famous American detective. More than once, he looked up from his dinner to lock eyes with a familiar face across the room. Searching his eidetic memory, he'd quickly come up with a match. It was usually a criminal he deported from New York. There were hundreds of men and women Petrozino had arrested that now resided in Italy, and hundreds more who had a friend or relative that Petrozino had put in jail. The most dangerous of these was a man named Vito Cascio Ferro. Six years earlier, in 1903, Petrozino and Cascio Ferro crossed paths in the aftermath of the infamous barrel murder committed by the Morello gang. Just after dawn on April 14, 1903, washerwoman Frances Connors was walking down 11th Street in Manhattan when she spotted a barrel in the middle of the sidewalk. 
A heavy woolen overcoat covered the barrel. Curious, Francis lifted the coat to peek inside. She screamed when she saw the body. It was a man, naked. His neck cut so deeply, his head was barely attached. He was Benedetto Madonia, a Sicilian immigrant who lived in Buffalo. The police called Detective Joe Petrozino in to track down the killers. He immediately suspected the Morello gang, a crew that ran a counterfeiting ring in Little Italy. Members of the group also had ties to the then burgeoning Black Hand. The next day, on April 15th, Petrozino and the NYPD rounded up eight members of the gang on suspicion of murder. Sensing the coming crackdown, two additional members, including Vito Cascio had already fled to Sicily. A career criminal, Casho Ferro came up with a brilliant defense for the gang members he left behind. Petrozino suspected that Tommaso the Ox Peto was the Morello member who had committed the barrel murder. Anticipating this, Casho Ferro hired a lookalike, who the police arrested in Peto's place. In the middle of the trial, the man believed to be Peto proclaimed that he was actually Giovanni Pecoraro. He produced identification and was able to convince the judge that he was not Peto and had never killed anyone. The judge had to let him walk. With no other evidence tying any of the Morello gang to the murder, the other seven men were set free. The court never tried anyone else for the barrel murder case. In the years since, Vito Cascioferro flourished in Sicily. He became a capo of the Cosa Nostra, the Sicilian mafia. He grew rich through protection money and charging his own tax on criminals and robbers in Palermo. But he never forgot the detective he blamed for his exile. He carried a picture of Joe Petrozino in his wallet, a little reminder of the man he hated most. So when he heard Petrozino was in Italy, Casio Ferro knew it was finally his chance for revenge. The morning of March 12, 1909, Joe Petrozino traveled from his hotel in Palermo to the small town of Caltasineta, 80 miles away. He spent his day speaking to court officials about how to obtain the town's penal records. Back in Palermo, two witnesses spotted Vito Casio Ferro throughout the day. The first was a street vendor, who sold the capo several postcards. Another saw Casio Ferro speaking with a man in Piazza Marina. That afternoon, Petrozino returned to his hotel, which bordered one side of the Piazza Marina. He remained inside until about 7.30 p.m. when he ventured out for dinner. Petrozino crossed the piazza, his umbrella protecting him from the last remnants of a spring thunderstorm. He entered the Café Areto around 7.40 p.m. and sat down to eat. According to the waiter's accounts, Petrozino dined with two men they did not know. When they all finished dinner, Petrozino paid the bill, bid the two men goodbye, and exited the restaurant. Petrozino was crossing the piazza when the attack occurred. At 8.45 p.m., six gunshots split the air in the Piazza Marina. A throng of men and women rushed towards the sounds. Some would later recount that two policemen stood in front of the customs house that bordered the piazza. Suspiciously, the cops remained unconcerned. Despite the gunshots and the crowd rushing towards the sound, they made no move to investigate the shooting in progress. 
The crowd stopped running when they discovered the large man lying on the street, his umbrella still in his hand. A revolver had been thrown to the ground next to him, reportedly covered in blood. Joe Petrozino, the Italian Sherlock Holmes, had finally met his Moriarty. He was dead. As bystanders knelt near Petrozino's body, the gas lamps that lit the piazza suddenly went dark. People retrieved candles from nearby stores and homes and lit them in the square, illuminating Petrozino's prone frame by flickering candlelight. In the darkness, Petrozino's unidentified killers slipped away. In the aftermath of Joe Petrozino's murder, chaos ruled. Though there were dozens of witnesses in the piazza when he was assassinated, almost none came forward. Those who did quickly recanted their statements, afraid of the Cosa Nostra's wrath. Petrozino's body was shipped home, where it received a martyr's funeral. More than 250,000 New Yorkers gathered on the streets to watch the funeral procession, mourning the loss of their hero. In Sicily, the police arrested Vito Cascio Ferro and 14 other accomplices on suspicion of Petrosino's murder. But with no witnesses willing to testify, all were acquitted in the courtroom. Though Petrosino's murder was never solved, many still believe that Cascio Ferro killed Petrosino in fulfillment of his vendetta. After Petrosino's funeral, the mayor disbanded the Italian squad. As a result, the fight against the Black Hand stalled. In the squad's absence, other gangs began adopting Black Hand tactics, like threatening letters and kidnapping. After a few years of this, it began to seem like without Petrozino, the Black Hand and other dangerous groups like it would become a permanent part of life. Then, in 1914, a new progressive mayor was elected in New York City. His appointee for police commissioner, reformist Arthur Woods, put the Black Hand at the top of his priority list. Just one year later, Woods's NYPD finally had the right case to take down the Black Hand. On May 13, 1915, six-year-old Francesco Longo never came home from school. His mother canvassed the neighborhood, asking his friend's parents, shopkeepers, even the janitor at the school if they'd seen him. But no one knew where the little boy had gone. By 8 p.m. that night, a Black Hand letter arrived at the Longo home. In the missive, Black Hand agents demanded $5,000 for Longo's return. Commissioner Woods ordered his policemen to jump on the case, guns blazing. Rocco Cavone, the Italian squad member who had gone undercover back in 1904, led the mission to recover little Francesco. The police descended on the neighborhood, interviewing parents of children who had previously been kidnapped by the Black Hand. Whenever the parents were able to name the person who extorted them, the police assigned four officers to tail that suspect. Woods authorized unprecedented manpower to follow every last detail of the Longo case. The commissioner believed that Bingham and his other predecessors had let the Black Hand run amok for too long. Woods would not let the society have the same freedom as long as he was in charge. On Woods's command, undercover agent Cavone arranged for Francesco's father to pay the ransom in marked bills. 
As soon as the boy returned home, the NYPD swooped in, arresting all the suspects they'd been tracking. The presence of the marked bills in each of their possessions sealed their fates. Altogether, Woods's squad arrested 20 people in the kidnapping sting. Each offender received an incredibly harsh sentence, some even as long as 20 or 30 years in prison. The punishments sent an unmistakable message. The Black Hand would no longer be welcome in New York. As a result, Francesco Longo's case was the last recorded kidnapping by the Black Hand in New York City. But it didn't ultimately end the society. For that, the NYPD had to use even more unorthodox methods. Officers trailed Black Handers and harassed them. They stopped them for questioning or threw them against building walls. They searched the Black Hand's houses without warrants. They arrested them repeatedly for crimes like vagrancy and loitering. It was completely unconstitutional and infringed upon the people's rights, but Woods's methods were successful and scores of Black Handers left New York City. They knew that their reign was over. Other factors contributed to the decline of the Black Hand across the country. When America passed prohibition in 1919, many criminals left risky black hand operations for profitable bootlegging schemes. Furthermore, second-generation Italian-Americans moved to new areas, breaking up the densely Italian neighborhoods that had sprung up in New York, Chicago, Boston, and other cities. This meant that the black hand no longer had an Italian hunting ground. The last vestiges of the Black Hand melted away the same way it had formed, secretly and silently. Leaders of Black Hand groups likely transitioned to the burgeoning Italian-American Mafia, which expanded greatly in the Prohibition era. The New York City of today looks much different from the streets the Black Hand stalked in the 1900s. Little Italy is much smaller, only covering a few blocks. Though there are still restaurants and groceries with Italian names in the area, you're more likely to hear Mandarin in the street than Sicilian. But in a small triangle of land bordered by Lafayette and Kenmare, you'll find one little piece of the Black Hand's legacy. Lieutenant Petrozino Square bears the name of the fallen detective who dedicated his life to besting the Black Hand. Though the world has forgotten his contributions, the proof of his legacy is in the dozens of safe Italian-American neighborhoods across the country. So if you visit one of the nearby Italian restaurants, toast salute to the detective. Thanks again for tuning into Secret Societies. We'll be back on Thursday with a new episode. For more information on The Black Hand, amongst the many sources we used, we found The Black Hand by Stefan Talty, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Secret Societies and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Secret Societies, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Secret Societies on Spotify, just open the app and type Secret Societies in the search bar. We'll see you next time. Secret Societies was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Dick Schroeder. 
with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Joshua Kern. This episode of Secret Societies was written by Molly Quinlan, with writing assistance by Maggie Admire, and stars Greg Polson and Vanessa Richardson. Hi again, it's Greg. Before I go, I wanted to remind you to check out the new Spotify original from Parcast, Very Presidential with Ashley Flowers. Every Tuesday through the 2020 election, host Ashley Flowers shines a light on the darker side of the American presidency, exposing wildly true stories about history's most high-profile leaders. There's torrid love affairs, shocking blackmail schemes, and even murder. I can't recommend the show enough. To hear more, follow Very Presidential with Ashley Flowers free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.